0: Welcome to It's Our Money with Ellen Brown. A look behind the curtain of global finance and monetary control with one of the foremost experts in the field. Author of the bestseller Web of Debt and The Public Bank Solution, Ellen Brown's groundbreaking work began the movement to create new American public banks. We'll look at issues surrounding the world of money and the systems and powers that control it, as well as the progress being made on the public banking frontier. Program is underwritten by Public Banking Associates, a national consultancy of experts advising government leaders pursuing the creation of their own public banks. At publicbankingassociates.com. Well, hello and welcome to It's Our Money with Ellen Brown. I'm Walt McCree, Ellen's co host and senior advisor to the Public Banking Institute. Today, we're privileged to have one of our most esteemed advisors and colleagues. Uh, Dr. Robert Hockett, a professor of law at Cornell University, who holds a long list of achievements and impacts on current political economic thinking. Uh, to wit, uh, we arranged today's interview with him around this meeting that he scheduled with uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren. So Bob has been an important advisor to a lot of people who are on the national stage, including AOC, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, helping her with the Green uh, New Deal uh, formulation. He has advised the presidential campaign of Bernie Sanders, testified before the House Financial Services Committee a number of times, along with numerous national media appearances, and Bob periodically publishes articles in Forbes magazine on economic and monetary uh, affairs. Much of his work has been on the interlinkages between economic inequality private debt and financial and political fragility, which, of course, is why we at the Public Banking Institute are so pleased and fortunate to have him on our advisory board as we work together to help bring about new American public financial institutions. Today, we're going to be taking our whole time to talk with Bob about something of great import and timeliness, namely the office of the Comptroller of the Currency, the OCC. Now, you may not have heard much about that, but it's a critical agency, and uh, we're going to take care of what you don't know in the next hour, with Bob telling you chapter and verse about the OCC. It came to mind to invite him today for this because his longtime colleague and fellow Cornell faculty member, Saleh Omarava, uh, has been named to become President Biden's new director of the OCC. This news really brightened many of us public banking protagonists, and we'll get into why that's so. But his presence today today is also of timely significance because of the discussion around infrastructure finance. Bob and Omarova, several years ago, collaborated on creating the concept of a national investment authority, which hopefully we'll have a chance to touch on, because it would help oversee and work with the financing for the critical needs of the nation, including our infrastructure. So to get started, let me turn this over to Ellen to welcome Bob and begin our conversation. Ellen?
1: Hi, Bob. It's great to be talking to you again. Um, So uh, on the opposite of the controller of the currency, starting right out, what is it and Why is it important?
2: Yeah, a couple. So first of all, really great to be with you guys. Thanks so much, Walt. And thanks, Ellen. Great to be with you guys both again. Um, On the office of the OCC and sort of what it is, what it used to be, what it could be again, what it might become again, what it might not become again, um, quite a bit to say. So I'll try to be um, uh, very succinct. Why don't I start with what it is and does right now? Then I'll say a little bit about its background, which gives you a little bit more indication of how important it is in potential. Uh, and then we can say a little bit more about just how exciting or why it's so exciting uh, that Saleh has been um, named by President Biden as nominee fill that post. So what most Americans right now know the OCC at all, know it as, is as the nation's primary bank regulator, at least for banks that have national charters. So anytime you see the suffix N-A following a comma after the name of a bank, that doesn't mean not available. It means national association. And that means in turn that this is a nationally chartered bank. And as you guys know, the biggest and most important banks in the country world are nationally chartered right so you see bank of america comma na that means national association that means it's been licensed by the federal government now the occ is the licensing authority right so you cannot engage in the business of banking as a national bank with a banking charter unless the OCC has pre-cleared you, has said that you are permitted indeed to be a bank in the United States, right? So that's the first role that it plays. Now, in connection with that role, it plays a couple of other roles. One of them is to administer some of the most important pieces of the bank regulatory regime. The most important piece of the bank regulatory regime that the OCC covers or administers is probably the portfolio regulatory regime. That's to say what the banks are allowed to lend in or invest in and also how diversified those portfolios have to be. Right. A related but somewhat distinct function that they play is to sort of police the boundaries of what the the activities that the banks engage in. So in the same way that some things are definitively considered to be the business of banking, the kind of thing that if you do it, you have to get licensed to to do it, sort of in the same way, there are things that are definitively considered to be non-banking, that banks are not permitted to be in because they're thought to be too risky, right? So for example, 20 years ago, it was thought that if banks are engaged in the derivatives trade, That's a bad idea. And so derivatives were considered to be off limits to banks that was sort of outside the scope of the business of banking. Eventually the OCC allowed that to happen which actually ended up being harmful for the banks. And one of the things that Saleh, by the way, is best known for is for her very painstaking work and how it came to be permitted for banks to engage in the derivatives trade. That all happened through the OCC. And she was highly critical of the OCC at the time, especially Julie Williams, uh, who was the sort of last OCC head who was kind of... I think you might say friendly uh, to banks getting sort of out of their traditional fields. Um, So in in a way, uh, that particular role of the OCC is especially important or especially relevant insofar as we're talking about Saleh as a possible appointee there. But in any event, just to set that aside for the moment, that's the sort of primary role that the OCC has now. It charters national banks. It administers the regime pursuant to which we regulate what they invest in and it polices the boundary between banks and non-banks, telling us what banks are permitted to do and what they're not permitted to do. Okay, Now, when it comes to the history here, this is something that you guys will be especially able to understand and appreciate uh, in a way that most others. Won't, but it seems to me it's important that more people come to appreciate this. Because you guys are very, you, your, your very identity as public figures, in a sense, is associated with the role that banks play in making the money supply, the national money supply. The role of the bank regulators is a monetarily important role, too, right? And in fact, the office was actually created at the same time that our national currency was created. This also is going to have some nice resonances with current affairs, in particular, the crypto space. Um, so as you guys all already know the history, but just for the benefit of, of our viewers and, and listeners, before the Civil War, before the 1860s, there was no national paper currency. What there was was paper banknotes were issued by private sector banks often referred to as wildcat banks and hence these paper notes were often referred to as wildcat currency the problem with these banknotes of course is the reliability of them as paper currency varied with the reliability of the banks that issued them And that in turn varied with the reliability of the state regulatory regimes under which they operated because there was no federal banking regulation at that point. There was only state banking regulation. Now, during the Civil War, this became quite clearly untenable because values of currencies were always fluctuating wildly relative to one another and relative to the goods and services that you could purchase with them. Sounds a bit like crypto, doesn't it? Cryptocurrencies today constantly varying in value relative to goods and services and relative to one another. So what Congress did in the 1860s was in rapid succession to pass three bills. One was the Legal Tender Act, one was the Currency Act, and one was the National Bank Act. Those three were a trio. There's a reason that they were all passed at the same time. But without getting tedious, I'll just focus on the National Bank Act part here. The National Bank Act gave us a system of federally chartered banks, the national banks or NAs that we find with us to this very day. And it created a chartering authority within the treasury department called the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency. And you might wonder, well, why was a bank regulator called the comptroller of the currency? Well, it's because of the bank's connection to the currency itself, which, again, is something that you guys know well and have been trying to educate the public on for many years, but which the public, many members of the public still have to hear about and still have to learn. But the basic idea was that these national banks were going to issue their own paper currency, distinguished the the wildcat notes that were issued by the private sector banks. And it was going to be the same currency. All nationally charged banks were in effect going to issue the same currency. It was going to be called the greenback. That's the same green that we find in today's dollar. That was, in effect, the first paper dollar. The Congress of the 1860s understood, as the Congress of more modern times doesn't seem to, That the issue that the banks are critically at at the core of the money supply system and the money issuance system. And therefore, the bank regulator was also a money regulator, i.e., a controller. Comptroller is just archaic English for controller, controller of the currency. So basically, all of this is a sort of hint that the role of the OCC is in potential and on the basis of its own statutory authority a tremendously important figure in our federal government, but it's tended not to be used that way. We tended to cede most of the functions that it played during its first 50 years over to the Fed because the Fed didn't come into existence until 50 years later. But the OCC has never lost the authority to play a critical role in tandem with the Fed in managing the nation's money system, both in terms of the quantity of money in circulation relative to goods and services, and even in terms of the allocation of that issued money supply, where that money is flowing. And indeed, that portfolio role that I mentioned a moment ago that the OCC still plays to this day is itself a role that can be used to influence the direction in which public money actually flows. So it's a potentially very, very important position. Now, final point before I pause for more, more things that we'll want to talk about, I want to issue a quick disclaimer or a kind of a cautionary note. And that is that the mere fact that the OCC has that historic significance and could play that role doesn't mean that that's what Sal, that Saleh would use it in that way. Saleh is not a radical. Sal is a very progressively oriented, highly ultra-competent banking lawyer right and she's capable of radical imagination but she's not a sort of politically radical person she's much more I think temperamentally cautious than that so I think what we would be most likely to see from Sally at the front end or at the beginning if she ends up being confirmed is somebody who revitalizes one of the roles that the OCC has been playing continuously over the last number of decades A role that has kind of been underplayed of late and that is that boundary policing role that i mentioned before sally is very concerned as is gary gensler who's currently chair of the sec as is janet yellen as are many people in the treasury department and as are many public spirited human beings generally very concerned about the way in which fintech is making inroads into the banking sector and the way in which the banking sector is sort of moving into fintech. Because the worry here is that fintech is effectively becoming the new shadow banking. It is beginning to raise systemic threats to the banking system akin to those that the subprime mortgage-backed securitization markets and derivatives markets and money market mutual fund markets did 20 years ago And not unlike the threats that the junk bond markets began to pose to the old savings and loan institutions or thrift institutions 30 and 40 years ago. So I think that probably the first thing that you would see Sally being interested in, and she's even on record as having expressed concern about this, is that once again, the boundaries between traditional banking and more sort of high-flying, out-of-the-box banking services that pose systemic risk to the financial system as a whole. Once again that boundary is coming to be blurred. And she's I think she's of a mind to, you know, once again to establish the, the clarity of that boundary, which is in a way the most urgent task for an OCC to do.
1: So that history of the OCC was very interesting. Um, one concern I have is that they charter the national banks, but what about the state-owned banks? We, Our particular interest with public banking are local state-chartered banks. And we, it would be great to have a person who is favorable to public banking in a position to help us get credit? We're, I mean, we're hoping to be able to get the same sort of perks that the big banks get, cheap credit from the Fed, for example. Uh, but so could you explain the the connection there?
2: Sure. Yeah. So the first is a sort of an institutional backdrop that will uh, sort of lay really quickly just so people sort of understand the sort of the background condition here that determines what I'm about to say. So um, we have, um, as you guys know, with some of our listeners and, and first-time viewers might not know, what's called a dual banking in the U.S. And that, what that means is basically we have a system of nationally chartered banks on the one hand, and state chartered banks on the other. Now the nationally chartered banks are all chartered by the OCC that we were just talking about. The state chartered banks are all chartered by some state equivalent or counterpart to the OCC. That's usually called the state banking commissioner. Sometimes it'll have some other name like in New York, the division of financial services. But basically every state has some kind of a financial regulator, some kind of a bank regulator. And that regulator typically is also the person who charters state banks. Now. The State banks do not directly fall under the same regulations that the OCC regulated. National banks do, but they do indirectly fall under that regulatory umbrella in the following way. When we got deposit insurance, federal deposit insurance in the 1930s, what we did was we created yet another bank regulator, namely the FDIC, which is able to regulate banks in order to preserve the safety of the Federal Deposit Insurance Fund, which is that out of which the federal deposit insurance is paid if a bank goes under. And what we also Also, did then is we said, All right, all of you state chartered banks, if you would like federal deposit insurance, you can have it, but you have to do the same thing that nationally chartered banks do in order to get it. And that includes obeying various federal regulations. So, in a sense, what we have is federal regulations that apply directly to federal chartered banks. And then that apply indirectly to state chartered banks if they want deposit insurance, and of course all of them do because you're not going to get any depositors if you don't offer deposit insurance. What that means in turn, now getting back to your more specific question, Ellen, is that insofar as we we think about public banks that would have state charters, it would be helpful to have somebody sympathetic to public banking at the OCC which I think Saleh would be, even though she hasn't ever sort of officially weighed in one way or the other, publicly or privately, quite candid, publicly or privately about public banking. It's probably safe to assume that she's at least sympathetic to the cause. But irrespective of that, it wouldn't be enough. Right. We also would need somebody sympathetic at the FDIC, and probably somebody sympathetic at the Fed. Now, that's not to say that we wouldn't have such. I think that there are plenty of people at the Fed who are quite sympathetic to the public banking movement. In fact, I don't just think it, I know it. Hmm. And I think that there are people at the FDIC who are sympathetic to public banking. And if there aren't, then maybe I can go to the FDIC and make it that way. Um, yes. I <laughs> I think- that would be great. Right. Sally would be a friendly fellow traveler at the very least, I think. But it's, it's important just so that we know what, what we can realistically expect and what we can't. That if we wanted sort of a friendly federal eye cast on the public banking movement when it comes to state chartered public banks, we would need more than a friendly OCC. Uh, we would also need a friendly Fed and a friendly FDIC.
0: What about the unfriendliness that's been expressed towards Saleh's uh, nomination? Where's that coming from and what's the, what's the concern? Yeah.
2: yeah, there's a really interesting game being played here that is actually entirely understandable once you sort of highlight it or sort of shine the spotlight on it. So all of the people who are usually behind shadow banking in the first place, right? The same wonderful people who brought you shadow banking in the lead up to the 2008 crash, who pushed to allow banks to engage in derivatives trading, who pushed to allow banks into the mortgage securitization markets, who pushed to allow banks to acquire or become involved with money market mutual funds and so forth. All of those same suspects and their progeny are now very actively trying to get banks into the fintech space and trying to sort of sponsor or bring about mergers or acquisitions that basically bring fintech and so called crypto assets into the banking space. And they're of course trying to push against any sort of regulatory inhibitions on that kind of activity. It's basically shadow banking yet again, it's shadow banking redux. Basically shadow banking is always the same, you know, for, for, it's literally been with us for centuries. It's always of the same form. The only thing that changes is that whatever the newfangled asset is, that the banks can are going you. Get. Can you
1: define it for people who don't know? <laughs> yeah,
2: it's it's basically any time some institution um, begins to borrow short and lend long. Basically, if you're borrowing short-term from lots of folk and you're using the borrowings to make speculative investments Mm -hmm. in so-called assets whose payouts wouldn't come until later, anytime you're doing that, you're basically engaging in what the financiers call maturity transformation, right? Short borrowing, long lending that exposes the financial system to liquidity risk. We're fine with that as long as the only people who might ultimately end up being harmed if that risk eventuates Are a small number of people, especially preferably rich people, who's basically losing something doesn't imperil the entire payments system. But because the payment system is built on the banking architecture, if the banks are exposed to this kind of risk, so is the payment system, and so is all commerce in America, and so is the entire economy in consequence. So what we try to do is we try to keep actual banks out of all of this, and we do it by regulating But the problem of course comes when you have non-banks doing the bank-like thing and thereby escaping the bank regulatory umbrella. Or if you have banks themselves doing it, but somehow fooling the regulators into thinking that they're not doing it or that it's not dangerous. That's where that boundary becomes important. So all the changes then is the particular speculative asset that is shadow banked in. That and there's usually a clue, really fundamental clue that we can usually see in these cases. So the clue in the 1980s was the word junk, right in the in the term. The clue in the lead up to 2008 was the word subprime in the word or the phrase subprime mortgage. The clue now is crypto. Right. If if you hear the word crypto, that's not good. Right. That's not a good sign. Um, And so I think where we see the shadow banking happening now, of course, is in the crypto space.
1: But in what sense are we talking about borrowing short to lend long in the crypto space? I mean, I didn't know there were even loans in the crypto space and that's one problem with it is you can't really, you can't leverage your money into, you know, infrastructure bank type loans.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, there's all kinds of leverage that they're trying to sort of make possible, right? There are even, the, the one that's most conspicuous right now is the attempt essentially to offer something like a back substitute in the form of some so-called coin exchange, or in the form of some so-called stable coin, or in the for, in some other form. Basically, the idea would be that people are able to sort of, quote unquote, make deposits, a kind of basically make money available to crypto speculation or to crypto investment, which money then might be lost to them in the event that those investments come a cropper. If we just sort of broadly characterize this as an attempt, basically, yet again, it's the same pattern every single time, to replicate the short borrowing, long lending, which is the banking business model, to replicate it yet again in some space that is not liquidity regulated in the way that the banks are.
0: The Chinese have outlawed this, basically, any sort of exchange in crypto. They seem to be running a much more practical, effective ship. Uh, than we are over here because not they for, are. But by golly, they've got a pretty stable economic model.
1: But they yeah. have moved into central bank digital currency, which is the alternative. And I mean, I've written good things about it favorably about it. And I know you have uh, I've seen one major concern that does concern me too. This is what Werner said in 2016 at a conference in Greece. He said the central banks are trying to take over. To do this, they are driving both cash and bank credit out of business, uh, furthering their goal of becoming the complete masters of our lives by allowing only digital currency that they issue and control and that they can monitor in terms of all transactions and that they can switch off if, for instance, some pesky dissident criticizes them too much. Well, that did look very conspiratorial then, but we're seeing stuff like that now. I mean. I've seen two cases where they actually did banks canceled somebody's account because of social media or something. I mean, so they, we know that they know what we're saying, like on um, social media. Because, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we know yeah. they've got the ability to control everything. So how do yeah. we avoid that sort of centralized control? I mean, I do think there's a lot of potential to a central bank digital currency, like you've argued and I've argued it. It makes allows the government to make direct payments. Another problem with that, if I could just bring up my second issue. Um, So Alexander Hamilton, you know, said that you should make loans that include the ability to pay them back. I don't remember what the exact language was, but anyway, Mm -hmm. make productive loans that will produce stuff so that so that you know that it will pay back. and so you could arguably put uh, you know, universal basic income into people's accounts directly. You know, I used to think that was a good idea, but now I'm pulling back because of all these other concerns. So those are two issues.
2: <laughs> yeah. So let's. Um, so yeah, there's a whole lot going on here. Um, first, um, to go back uh, to Walt's question, because we were sort of in the middle of addressing that one. So to go back to Walt's question, remember Walt was sort of asking, you know, what's what's grounding the objection to Sale, right? What is, uh, insofar as there is objection coming from industry, what's motivating the objection? And I mentioned that there's a sort of an interesting game going on here. So on the first of all, there's the question, you know, what's the motive? Why might some of the industry object to her? But then the second thing is, what's their strategy for objecting to her? So starting with the motive, what I was sort of setting us up to explain the motive when I was talking about shadow banking, in effect, um, the way to look at Sally's concerns about what's going on in crypto right now, which she's written a good bit about, in effect, she's noting that it's, it is threatening to become the new shadow banking. So she wants to basically reassert the boundary then between traditional banking and non-banking in the same way that she called upon Julie Williams to do back in the early 2000s, and which Julie didn't do, which then brought us, of course, or helped bring us the 2008 crash. So, of course, all of the people who want to push the shadow banking, the same people now as back then, are against Sally for the same reason that they were for Julie. However, they don't want to say that that's the reason. Because, in effect, they're saying, we don't like Sally because she doesn't want us to Violate the regs. And of course, they can't say that in public. So they have to find sort of silly reasons or less plausible rationalizations for their objection. So they're sort of trying to paint her as some kind of radical who's anti fintech and anti technology and anti modernization and anti innovation, the same sort of crap. And they said the same stuff. The shadow bankers said the same thing back in the early 2000s. They said, oh, these subprime mortgages, this is a new financial innovation. Oh, securitization derivatives. These are great new financial innovations. Anybody who's against them is a Luddite, is against modernity, is against progress. That is never the claim, right? It's not that anybody's against progress or innovation. It's just keeping it where it belongs and not exposing people to risk. So they're basically telling an implausible story about Sally in order to try to prevent her from being nominated because they know that she's going to be a real apostle of the policing of the continued integrity and safety and soundness of the financial institution. Okay. Now Turning from there uh, to CBDC, yes, Ellen, it's right. The the, the PBOC uh, is one of the leading central banks worldwide when it comes to um, developing CBDC. But it's not the only one. uh, And it's certainly, it's far from the only one that's moving forward on this. And it's not even the only one that's kind of cutting edge. If any jurisdiction is farther ahead than everybody else right now, it's Sweden. And ironically, Sweden is a great example of precisely why Richard Werner is, I think, wrong and being kind of paranoid, right? So as you might, I don't know how many of the details you know of the eKrona project, but what Sweden decided to do, this is some years back, is they noted that people were already moving away from paper money anyway. They were already beginning to use all of these digital apps on their iPhones, their smartphones, other smart devices and the like. And so they were getting concerned that it was gonna be difficult actually to manage Swedish monetary policy because most of Swedish monetary policy was conducted through the main, the, the traditional banking system. So they thought what we really need to do is digitize the chrono so that basically we can still be operating in the same payment space that people are moving to right now. On the other hand, we don't want in doing that to sacrifice the sort of privacy interests and the personal autonomy interests that paper currency, traditional paper currency allows for. So what they've done is they've, they've designed a digital currency that operationally replicates the functioning of paper currency. Well, what does that mean? It means automatic encryption of everything up to some threshold amount. And then once that threshold amount is reached, this is where, of course, bank secrecy laws would kick in, ter- anti money laundering statutes would kick in, anti terrorist finance statutes would kick in, and so forth. Basically, transactions become monitorable above the threshold amount as they are even in our current paper currency system. But you replicate digitally all of the sort of privacy and all personal autonomy uh, uh, capacities that paper currency offers when you're below that threshold. And as you might know, um, Sweden went operational on a trial basis with the e krona starting in February of 2020. And everything seems to have worked well. The sailing has been smooth. And so I think what we're seeing in Sweden now is a really smooth and graceful transition to a well-functioning privacy-protecting personal autonomy-respecting central bank-issued digital currency. Um, and I think the Swedish model is probably going to be the one, something like it will be the one, that will be followed by other Western democracies worldwide. And as you know, I have myself have been pushing for something very much like that for five or six years now here in the US, beginning at Treasury and then migrating over to Fed. So I'm actually pretty optimistic about all of that. Um, and I think that that's basically not only inevitable, but it's going to be a good inevitable. I think we should sort of celebrate it. We should probably be um, happy about this. If anything, we should be concerned that it's taking too long here because the alternative, right, the longer we delay here in the US in doing that, the more likelihood the private sector ends up getting you know, critical mass and getting um, a sort of first mover advantages in the space. And as you know, I hardly need to tell you guys, the private sector banking industry doesn't have your best interests at heart.
0: Mm-hmm. The central bank digital currency that you were just talking about it is in discussion with central banks around the world. Everybody seems to be really working together around that. Is there that kind of an alliance pushing back against cr- the crypto inclusion? Mm -hmm. Yes, there is. In fact, once again,
2: the past history of the 1860s is is instructive here. Um, So if you think about it, What we did when we went ahead and started issuing the greenback, once we actually had a nationally issued paper currency, all of these private paper currencies lost their rationale. There wasn't really much purpose or need for these paper currencies. If we remind ourselves, why did paper currency come along in the first place? Well, because it's not very convenient to drag around big bricks of gold bullion, right? If anybody's ever touched gold, they might know it's pretty heavy stuff. And if you're carrying it around, it's pretty damned inconvenient. Um, You know, likewise, metal coins and the like. Paper currency is just much more convenient than metallic currency. Furthermore, as you guys will know, you can issue paper currency in excess of the amount of metal currency that you have. So you're able to sort of grow what we call an elastic currency, allows for a growth in the supply of the currency to meet growing transaction demand as an economy expands. And that's why, so there was private demand for paper currency. And private sector institutions answered that demand. But dysfunction comes with that private supply. And so what we did when we effectively nationalized paper currency with the greenback was to say, "Okay, private sector, we recognize that you have a point that there is convenience in having a paper currency. On the other hand, leaving it private is dysfunctional, so we're going to have a public paper currency. Well, we're in exactly the same position right now. There is a lot to be said for the digitization of the payments infrastructure. It's a lot easier to pay for things now. It's a lot easier for the transactions to clear quickly and so forth. There's a lot of reason, a lot of good reason for the digitization of our payment system. Um, And that's why the private sector has sort of stepped up to the plate and been doing this. On the other hand, we've reached a point now where the dysfunctions of leaving it in private hands have become manifest. So we're basically going to go public now with digital currency, just like we eventually went public with paper currency. And what's going to happen to the private sector digital currency when we do that? The same thing that happened to private sector paper currency. When was the last time you paid for a Starbucks coffee with a a, a, Buffalo Bill bank banknote, a rattlesnake banknote, or a Puritan banknote? Probably never, right? Um, well, the but state- there's,
1: a, there's another storyline on that, that the state banks that did not want to join the national banking system, they were penalized at 10%, uh, yes. 10% tax on their notes. So what they did instead was issue checkbooks. So they just started writing the money into your account, and you would write the banknote in the form of a check that you gave to right. someone else. So that is how banks came to be issuing 10 times as much money as they or you know, in the former credit. I mean, it's the same system we have now. It's our digital system.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. One, another objection I've seen or concern about a central bank digital currency is that everybody's going to want to move into the central bank. It's more secure. It can't go We're not going to have bail-ins or bailouts or, you know, we don't need any of that because you've got the the Fed, right? I mean, the deep pocket of the Fed to back everything up. So that's good. But that will mean all the local banks will collapse. And that is, of course, Richard Werner's concern, too. He thinks we need many local banks in order to, because the local banks know their local markets. And it's like the Sparkism banks, which, you know, a very successful model where they lend they're limited to their local market. They know the local market. They actually work with the businesses to help them with their business plans, etc. Now, I know you have said spread the Fed, and it seems to me what you could do is have many local public banks that know their the local market, but that are plugged into the central bank system. And therefore, they can get that cheap liquidity from the central bank <laughs> system Mm -hmm. i saw you know in american banker of course they're opposed to all this stuff i think that's one reason that they're gonna all the money's gonna flow out of chase you know which has more deposits than anything else and flow into the central bank and then they're not going to be able to make loans so
2: right yeah so a couple things right so that is the spread the fed plan right the whole idea behind the spread the fed plan um, as i started pushing it a couple years ago is precisely that right just because depositors might hold their deposits on the liability side of the fed balance sheet doesn't mean that the assets generated have to be generated directly by the fed the assets generated only have to be quote unquote discounted by the fed i.e basically owned or held by or purchased by the fed and all the fed has to do then is impose criteria of eligibility for discountable loans and it can basically allow for smaller scale local public banks to be the ones whose notes they're discounting, or it can allow for local or community private sector banks to do that, or it can do both, right? And in effect, that's a lot like what the Fed did for the first 20 years of its existence, right? It's not an accident that one of the primary designers of the Federal Reserve System cut his teeth in the Sparkassen system, And that was Paul Warburg, right? People sort of forget. Paul Warburg was not just a guy with a German name. He was a German immigrant to the US. And the two primary architects of the Federal Reserve System were Paul Warburg on the one hand, and Carter Glass of Glass-Steagall fame on the other hand and they had very much Richard's model in view because Richard's is just the German model. The German model in turn is just Alexander Hamilton's model because as we know, the founder of the German model was Friedrich List, a development economist of the eighteenth 19th century who basically thought, hey, this Hamilton guy's got it going on. Let's do the Hamilton thing here in Germany. So this is basically the whole Fed model is Hamiltonian by way of Germany, right? So Hamilton influences the Germans, the Germans that influence the creation of the Fed. And the whole idea was for the regional Federal Reserve banks to discount paper issued by or lent by smaller scale private sector banks only for productive purposes, right? Which is the Hamilton thing again. They have to be in effect effect liquidatable by actual productive uh, projects, right? Um, That was the whole model and the whole spread the Fed idea is just to say, look, let's revitalize that. Let's do a 21st century version of the same thing because that's where we went astray. So, um, and, and none of that is in any way undercut or diminished By the idea of a CBDC. All we have to do is remind people of something, a very basic accounting principle, which is that the liability side of a balance sheet is not the same thing as the asset side of a balance sheet, even if they have to equate, right? Um, So the the, the asset side of the balance sheet is where the lending is done, where it's generated, where it happens. And that could be originated by, or it could be gate kept by private sector, local banks, or by public banks that operate locally, who, just as you said, Ellen, and just as Hamilton would have said, understand local conditions, understand um, a plausible, viable business plan or production plan, and can distinguish it from a merely speculative operation in a way that Chase Bank either can't or has no interest in oh, doing. Right. right? Yeah. yeah. Right.
1: The, the other model that Werner likes besides Germany is the Chinese model because they also let all their provinces set up their own local banks. Can they tap into the central bank where, you know, the PBOC whenever they want? Or, it's the same system where you had a bunch of little provincial experiments going on, you know, where yep. they, they knew their local market and they could lend into their local market. Of course, now they're all many of them are have a lot of non-performing loans I mean it's pretty controversial but still obviously they've done amazing things in the last 30 or 40 years that yes. nobody else has been able to duplicate
2: I've been telling you know it's sort of uh, this is this is part of an part of a response to your question, but there's also more response to make too. But the beginning of a response is just as a sort of aside to note that I've been telling my students for 15 years now to watch the PBOC if they want to see what a really sensible central bank would do. Because even you know during the period when Greenspan was still the chair of the Fed, and during the period, even in the early days of the Bernanke Fed, the Fed was not doing nearly as much as the PBOC was doing to act preemptively to prevent a real estate bubble from becoming a, a nationwide financial calamity. As you know, China, of course, is, this always comes with, with rapid growth, but China has had serious difficulties associated both with Uh, commercial real estate bubbles and with residential real estate bubbles. And the PBOC has done marvelous work in preventing that from ever becoming calamitous. And the very fact that it's been doing this for 15 years, and so far, there hasn't been a real estate calamity in China is a pretty good indicator that they kind of know what they're doing. There have been some troubles with non-performing loans. And the question is, you know, sort of how do you deal with those in a manner that on the one hand liquidates, but on the other hand doesn't spark crisis or chaos. Um, And they've been doing a remarkable job of containing that sort of possible chaos uh, as well. And it's partly by being discreet. It's partly by being regulatorily strong, basically making clear that you don't want to mess with the authorities as Walt kind of diplomatically suggested a few minutes ago. Um, And it's partly just sort of knowing what's salvageable and what's not. And they're pretty good at that.
1: Another issue is how do we get rid of all the debt that we have here? Mm -hmm. And it does seem like, you know, if you had a public system, you could just write it off, Yeah, but then you would have arguments about that. That might be inflationary. You would have arguments about, well, the, the students got their debt written off, why didn't I get my credit card debt written off or whatever, you know? So, I mean, there'd be a lot of issues to that, but what, what do you think about it? How do, we, how do we get out of all this debt issue? Without
2: Yeah, I think there are a number of strategies that might be worth thinking about. If, if one is worried about sort of targeting debt reduction to particular sectors like just student debt, but not credit card debt or whatever, one way to get around something like that would be to say, well, what we're going to do is give a partial Jubilee to everybody. We, we don't, Distinguish between categories of debt, but instead we just instead of writing it off entirely, we reduce it by fifty percent or twenty five percent or seventy five percent or whatever. That's one possible approach. Another would be to target it to the most needy, irrespective of the category of debt. Right. So if you um, if you're below the poverty line, or if you're you know below the top, I mean if you're in the bottom thirty percent of the income uh, distribution of the country or whatever, then you get your debt reduced whether it be credit card debt, student debt or something else, those would be two ways, I think, of being appropriately scaled so that it would be large scale reduction on the one hand, while at the same time not seeming to play favorites between classes of debtor on the other except with respect to a class that I think we can all agree is most in need of help, which would be those who are not high income um, and are not high net worth. I think you could handle it that way. And you might even handle it both of those ways. Those might be two strategies that are even mutually complementary. that would leave the the only objection that would leave then would be the possible inflation problem. But, you know, as we've talked about so many times before on this very program, There are so many ways to keep inflation contained in the event that it should ever actually emerge. I don't think that that's actually a serious worry at this point. It's. I don't mean to be cavalier about it. I don't mean to suggest that- Sorry, So what can you enumerate the
1: ways you're thinking of?
2: Yeah, well, so you know, basically we, we tend to, to ignore the sector specificity of inflation, right? We tend to, to ignore the fact that inflation tends to emerge in particular sectors of the economy. And if we stop ignoring that, then we can note that there are ways to sort of nip any inflationary pressure in the bud by taking deflationary or contractionary measures that are themselves targeted to the particular sectors where inflation looks apt to break out. Furthermore, we can act; we can operate from the demand side or the supply side in any such sector. So, for example, take um, uh, take some of the inflationary pressures that have been noted since this past spring. A lot of these are, as the Fed has said, transitory, precisely because COVID and other problems constrain supplies. There was supply chain dysfunction. There was also um, uh, sort of temporary slowdowns in actual manufacturing because people couldn't work in close proximity and so forth. If we actually added industrial policy into our finance regulatory frame of thought and realized that, hey, wait a minute, we can expand production of certain things that are critical supplies in our economy as a whole. We can actually take price pressure off of them by boosting the supplies by actually beginning to sort of publicly boost production as we did during the- the Second World War, right? Um, actually, the Second World War is a great example, right? There, were, there was, there was a, a massive, a sudden spike in demand for rubber, right, during the Second World War. So what did we do? Well, we did two things, right? First of all, we introduced price controls to counteract inflation in the rubber markets. And second of all, we created a public corporation, not public as in publicly traded, but an actual public sector corporation called the National Rubber Company or something like that. And we actually built a bunch of factories that were publicly owned and they just started producing synthetic rubber massively. And now all of a sudden, inflation in the rubber markets just disappeared in the US. You didn't have any problem anymore. That's a classic case where you operate from the demand side and supply side simultaneously. And furthermore, Furthermore, you do it sector specifically Um, and we haven't done any of those three things in recent decades. We've ignored the sector specificity of inflation. We've also ignored the fact that there's a demand side piece and a supply side piece of inflation. If we remind ourselves of all three of those things, we can handle any inflation problem if it ever emerges. But I again hasten to add that there's no real sign at this point yet of anything that even remotely resembles the possibility of a long-term inflation, as distinguished from a quick, transitory supply-side shock that's already under that's already being repaired, even as we speak.
0: The world of currency and banking is so dynamic now, uh, yeah. all over the world, with new technologies and new understandings and new possibilities. And you speak very optimistically, I think, at at times anyway, about your colleagues at the Federal Reserve. And I'm wondering, what's your sense of the the vibe in town, the intelligence, the the dynamic thinkers? Do they have enough a way against the chaos of the profiteering interests that have been running the show for so long?
2: I think so. I've literally never been this. That's such a great question, Walt. But it's also it's a question that makes me really happy because answering it reminds me of why I'm so happy these days. You know, as you guys know, I was not a great fan of Joe Biden during the campaign because, frankly, I expected more Clintonism. I expected more sort of, you know, usual suspects um, of the kind that we saw during the Clinton years and during the Obama years. And it seemed to me that, that we had reached a critical point in our economic history and social history that necessitated something a little bit more foundational or fundamental, something more Liz Warren or Bernie Sanders. And I frankly thought that maybe Liz Warren might be the, the optimal sort of place to be in the sense that it would be quite as fully radical as Bernie But it would certainly be a a major step beyond sort of Clintonism business as usual. I didn't expect that from Joe Biden. But when it emerged last October and November that the people who Biden was listening to were, you know, half of them were people I was sort of friends and, and allies with. And when they even began calling me up to ask for advice from me, I sort of thought, Maybe I was wrong about Joe Biden, right? Maybe they have something else in mind. Well, ever since he won the election and especially ever since he took office, It's just been one piece of good news after another when it comes to appointments and when it's come to further news about people who he's listening to. Right. So the very fact that Gary Gensler was chosen for the SEC, the very fact that Janet Yellen was chosen, the very fact that Lena Kahn was chosen for the FTC, The very fact that um, quite a few other folks of similar caliber were chosen to work in the White House itself, including Lisa Cook, for example, and Brian Deese, for example, um, and of course, Jared Bernstein, right? People like that. And now to me, like the most exciting news of all, the very fact that they would even consider Sally, let alone go forward and nominate her, is to me a fantastic sign. Because frankly, if they had nominated somebody like me for something, I would think it probably shows bad political judgment because I would probably be considered too radical. But Sally is like perfect because she's as as, as, as as she's as progressive as you can get without being, you know, dangerous, so to speak. I think Sally is a perfectly reasonable choice, right? She did work in the Bush administration, after all. She worked in the Bush Treasury Department. Her mentor at Davis Polk, which is a very pro-bank law firm, was Randy Quarles, who's, of course, on the Fed board right now as a Republican appointee. She's not dangerous. She's just reasonable. She understands and is also very... Forcefully, forceful in her understanding and in her willingness to act on her understanding that the banking sector has to be the banking sector, not the shadow banking sector. Right. right? But in in any event, um, I think. I can't imagine a better pick if Bernie had become president. And if I were, let's say I had some advisory role in the Sanders administration and Bernie said, oh, who do you think should be the OCC? I would have said Sally Omarova, without, you know, hands down (laughs) question. Because uh, she understands she, you couldn't pick anybody who knows this stuff better than she does or who's more competent than she is. You couldn't pick somebody who's more sort of devoted to the public good than she is, she knows what's what. She's not a kind of crazy wild-eyed mad scientist. She's not going to do something crazy. So I think couldn't imagine a better pick. Uh, and the fact that Joe Biden picked her, again, it's just further confirmation that, that this guy is going to be the most transformative president that we've had since FDR. much more transformative even than LBJ.
0: Interesting. And just one more seat. uh, And that's the Mr. Powell's uh, position. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you think you might find to be looking for somebody to play golf with? (laughs) I
2: don't. I think I think what's going to happen is the following. And I frankly actually think it's not a bad thing. I think it's actually a good thing. I think Powell will be reappointed. I think Lale will be named to hold Rich Clarida's position since uh, he's going to be leaving too. And I think our friend Sarah Raskin, Sarah Bloom Raskin, will be appointed to Randy Corals' position. So Randy, who I mentioned a moment ago, is one of Saleh's past mentors. Mm-hmm. He's the vice chair in charge of financial regulation. I think all of Elizabeth Warren's um complaints about Powell when it comes to climate regulation and inequality, those are more properly aimed at Randy Quarles. I don't think that's really Jay Powell's job. I don't think Jay Powell's principal um, job description would include a focus on the climate and on inequality Given that there is a vice chair in charge of regulation whose task can be that, and given that there's another vice chair who can be focused more on that, um, and given furthermore that Jay has himself said over and over and over again that he will defer to his vice chairs on their opinions with respect to those matters that have been explicitly put within their. Ambits, right? So, as you know, Sarah Bloom Raskin is the leading voice in the world, certainly in the US, in the USA, in the US, if not the world, when it comes to adding climate change concerns to central bank mandates. And when it comes to adding inequality concerns to central bank mandates, Sarah Bloom Raskin was ahead of the curve on both things, right? And that is uh, the way the Fed would work in those spaces would be via the vice chair for regulation. Mm -hmm. And so in consequence, I think the perfect person to have in charge of the Fed's efforts along those lines is the person who's named to be the vice chair for regulation. And I think Sarah Bloom Raskin is the perfect person to name to that chair. I also would bet good money that that's precisely what Joe will do. I would bet you that President Biden will nominate Sarah for that position. I think Lail Raynard is also a a leading figure, maybe not quite as cutting edge as Sarah Bloom Raskin, but pretty close to it. She's like the next best thing to Sarah Bloom Raskin on these things. And my bet is that she will be named to the other vice chair's position. She'll be the, the new Rich Clarida. And given they that Lael's strength in this realm on the one hand, Sarah's strength in these realms on the other hand. And then finally, Jay's publicly stated intention to defer to both of those vice chairs on the fields in which they are specialized. On the other hand, you add all that to the fact that Jay's instincts have been perfect when it comes to money, money supply stuff and tapering. Um, I think that that was going to be a killer team. I think. A Powell Brainerd Bloom Raskin Fed is going to be the greatest Fed that we've ever had. And I think that Fed working with a Yellow Treasury and with an Omarova OCC, my God, I mean, I I think I'll be ready to, you know, it's too young, I'm too early, it's too early, but I'm going to feel like, you know, I can just retire. You know, my job is done. There's nothing more I can contribute uh, to this (laughs) space where I supposedly have expertise. Because that team, and note that they're by the way almost all of them women. Only Jay Powell is not a woman uh, here, and the reason I want to note that is because ten years ago. Uh, I used to tell my financial regulation students all the time, I'd say, you know, you know there should just be a temporary rule. There should be a rule, a moratorium on male hires to top finance positions for the next 20 years because back then, of course, as you guys will remember, Sheila Bair, yeah. Brooksley Bourne, yeah. Mary Jo White, these were the people who were the serious financial regulators. And who were the, who were the guys who were screwing it up all the time? Larry Summers, Alan Greenspan, you know Bill Clinton. Um, so, in a sense, we have, you know, we're finally going to have a. Uh, uh, you know maybe a finance uh, maybe our, our our whole our structures of public finance will no longer be in the hands of people who snap towels in locker rooms there not to be too gender specific about all of this but you know it's another interesting sort of piece of, of the picture given what seemed to be the problem 10 15, 20 years ago
0: well that's the very encouraging bob uh, mm-hmm. really Makes, makes me smile. Ellen, uh, you know, we've kind of run out the clock, but it's always so good to be with uh, Bob. We could go on. There are so many more questions I'd like to get into with you at some time around uh, the, the possibility of how we could orchestrate the mechanics of, of, of public banks financing and it, uh, local currencies, uh, <laughs> working around the digital potential, but that's not for today. Ellen, okay. any, uh, any any final thoughts? Yeah, it's
1: great to hear all your thoughts
2: on that, Bob. <laughs> Agreed, there's <laughs> more to discuss. <laughs> great. Yeah. So, well, of course, as you guys know, we we we, we three do this a lot. And I'll, I'll look very much forward to the next one. This has been an absolute joy, of course, as these always are.
0: Thanks so uh, much, thanks, Bob, Bob. And Ellen. Of course. It's, it's been great, great to have you. Great. Uh, Thank uh, you guys uh, so much dr robert c hockett uh on it's our money you'll be hearing from him again and uh, we of course will uh, uh, joyfully uh, uh, share any additional input uh, that uh, comes along the way so thank you thanks Bob.
2: great thank you so much guys
0: well that's it for this edition of it's our money with ellen brown our thanks to our guests our sponsor public banking associates and to you for listening Be sure to check out Ellen's latest writings on the economy and the changing world of money by visiting ellenbrown.com. And for more information on public banking, visit publicbankinginstitute.org. For information on how local and state government leaders can obtain professional insight and counsel about public banks from key national experts, visit publicbankingassociates.com. I'm Walt McCree. See you next time on It's Our Money with Ellen Brown. money